welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads. I am your host, Dharma Kirti, joined with some friends of mine, the squad. The real squad. <laughs> hey, hey, this is Aura. Storm King. And this is Kagyu. And uh, today we thought we would continue a little bit of our discussion from last week. Um, with the, We had a Buddhism 101, which for anyone who's interested, uh, it's, uh, I think a good starting place. Um, and I'm sure, I think it's a nice, it would be nice at some point to return to some of those topics, in particular the Four Noble Truths. Um, these things never really go out of fashion. I mean, it's something that, you know, from the very beginning of the path all the way until perfect and total enlightenment or awakening that's never stops being relevant. And um, so it's, and it's definitely something worth thinking about and talking about and, and examining from different angles and, and something that can very much be applied to our situation, both in terms of our personal lives and, you know, uh, as we come at things from our perspective, I think to see, you know, what's going on in the world around us and how we can understand it and how it can be more effective. But before doing that, um, be uh, I thought we would get it would be nice to do some um, some question and answer because uh, I, I put the question out there in anticipation of the 101 episode. You know, what what are things that people have questions about? What are issues that people are interested in that are sort of like, you know, someone who doesn't necessarily know anything about Buddhism or doesn't necessarily have any experience? What, um, you know, what, what kind of questions do you have? And we got some really good questions. And so I think it's it would be... Um, it would be nice to to do that, and I, I guess I mean maybe this goes without saying, but probably it doesn't. <laughs> um, I you know once again for uh, those who may not be aware or those who may have other ideas to the contrary, you know we're all very much amateurs here. I, I think I speak it's okay to speak for all of us in this regard. You know none of us are traditionally empowered authorities. We are not teachers. We are just you know enthusiasts and people with some amount of training and knowledge and experience who. Um, are trying to share that in a, in a way that's hopefully effective, but you, you absolutely do not have to take anything we say, um, you know, at, at face value. Um, in fact, please don't. And um, if you, you know, this is it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. And I feel a little, I, I feel a little self-conscious about this. It's something that I've always struggled with um, for myself, but it's, it's ultimately something that I came down on the side of, um, you know, it, it's better to share the little bit of knowledge that I have, particularly when I'm I'm more secure in that knowledge than it than it is to just sort of use the fact that you know I'm not a llama or whatever um, as some kind of excuse to just sort of hole up and and do my own thing. I think I I think on balance it's better to to participate and to share. I mean, that's just how I feel. I don't know. No, I definitely agree with you. Like my take on this is give people enough knowledge. I want to give you enough knowledge that you can go and find a credible teacher who can actually be a expert who can who you can trust to actually show you something completely correctly with no problems whatsoever. Yeah. And in that regard, you know, one of the, that was one of the questions. Um, maybe we can start there. Um, there was a bunch of people who were asking, uh, you know, saying, I, I don't really know. Um, I don't know Buddhism in my, I may be interested, but I don't know how to find a teacher. I don't know how to um, connect with the Sangha. I don't know how to tell a Sangha, meaning like a community of Buddhist practitioners. Um, I don't know how to. I think DK may have dropped out. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Did I just drop out? Yeah, you yeah, dropped you're out. You're back now. You're back. Oh, okay, good. 
yeah, we, the last thing we heard from you, DK, was um, people saying, I don't know how to connect with the Sangha, um, and, but then we yeah. lost you. Oh, I was just saying, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I thought I would just let you guys talk for a second. Have you I'll, share your thoughts on this first? Yeah, and then I'll, I'll say have my something. own thoughts, but I'll go after, yeah. I'll say something quickly, and it's that, like, while, I mean, technically I am invested by the tradition to teach, but I haven't done any of the the stuff you're supposed to do after you get that authority. And it's not supposed to be done outside of um, really a monastic context. I mean, there is some precedent for lay teachers, but, you know, and I'll answer any questions anybody has obviously on anything, but there's a big difference between teaching Zen and, and teaching somebody Buddhism. So if, you know, if you guys want to DM me and ask me stuff about Zen, I can answer that a lot better than, questions uh about like the like dk and aura or kagyu are all going to be way better on doctrine questions and the more traditional buddhist stuff um so i just think there's a big difference there and and i don't you know i would never want to actually teach formally unless i that was all i was doing unless i could like devote my life to it because i wouldn't want to do that in a context where i wasn't giving somebody like a hundred percent I think I'm the only person on this call who doesn't have a formal teacher, so I will remain silent on that uh, question. But just in terms of um, getting involved uh, with the Sangha, which again is the is the community of Buddhists, the, really the worldwide community of Buddhists. Um, but you know, Sanghas are local. You know, like human beings. You know, they exist in local groups. If you're anywhere um, near to a major city in North America, there's almost certainly some meditation centers. Um, as Storm said last week, Soto Zen centers are everywhere. You can find uh, Vipassana centers. Um, you can find all kinds of different stuff. You Now, obviously, we can't vouch for the quality of the group that you're going to find or of the teachers um, that are, are there. Many, many, many of them do not have um, te you know, formal teachers, pe people who have been authorized um, by a real master to as you know as master teachers themselves some of them do some of them do have that many of them don't but that's okay you can still go um, in, typically you'll find that there's a little bit of ritual involved that they in many of these places well they they can all be very different but a, a typical experience is you'll find a small amount of sort of Buddhist flavor ritual at the beginning um, that they'll explain to you is it's the barrier to entry is really not nearly as high as you might imagine um that they tend to be pretty casual you're going to encounter some of these um annoying western dharma people but you're actually if you're lucky you're probably going to encounter some really cool people too um so my advice is just treat it like if you've ever you know gone to church or whatever just treat it that way you know not everybody there is going to be you know <laughs> perfect and enlightened or whatever but that that's the point the point is there's a place for people to go who are still working on this stuff so then you you typically will have maybe a small amount of chanting or bowing uh, lighting of incense that kind of thing but again don't let that scare you off it, they usually keep it pretty minor and then you'll have a sitting session maybe it'll be half an hour maybe it'll be an hour and uh you know most of these places have a website and they'll explain to you, you know what what they recommend that you you know, if you should wear anything special or not, you really don't have to. A comfortable pants is always useful if you're going to sit in a lotus or half lotus. Um, and then um, you can just sit there and do meditation. And, um, you know, we can talk about meditation specifically um, 
at a later time. But uh, really, it's pretty easy. You just got to sit there and, and do your best. And then at the end, you'll probably have a chance to either make a beeline towards the door if you're feeling uncomfortable or uh, hang around and chat with people if you want to do that. And I would really encourage people to just pick one that's, you know, that you can get your way to, that you can find your way to and just try it. You know, they'll usually do it on like a Thursday night or a Sunday morning or something and just check it out because it's, I don't know, from a psychological point of view, I think it's just sort of a feature of human, human nature that once you do something once or twice, you, it's much easier to sort of mentally commit yourself to taking it seriously. You know, the mind can sort of follow the body in, in that sense. Um, so yeah, that, that would be my main advice is just check out one of these don't expect it to be like the perfect one that you're going to love forever, but just the act of doing it will be really helpful. And then you'll have something to compare to future experiences you have. So maybe you go to a Soto Zen center and it's kind of cool, but it's parts of it that you don't like or whatever. And then you try out a, a Tibetan center and maybe there's a real llama there or something. And then you now you have two experiences that you compare against each other. And, and very quickly, you'll become much more expert than you were to start with. So that's my main advice to people. And also bear in mind when when you're looking for, if you get to the point where you're looking for a teacher, remember there's differences between someone who's simply had their awakening confirmed by their teacher and someone who's had that and has been trained as a teacher. Because after that sort of awakening, there's still a lot that can be done. You know, there's still progress to be made in all kinds of different areas. That's so something to keep in mind when you're looking for that. And, and I'll say on Soto's Zen centers, since there's so many of them, some of them are actually okay. I mean, the Soto school uh, has a good a good past, and a lot of that is still sticking around. You should just be very careful with it. Um, you know, listen very carefully to what they say, and and especially to what they to the advice they give you outside of practice advice and and teaching, because a lot of that tends to be kind of really liberal stuff that can that can get you into some. Uh, it, it's bad advice, so just be careful. Well, on, on that note, one thing I will say is while it's certainly not the case that the various kind of um, typically Asian ethnic communities, um, you know, and Buddhist centers are immune from pause and degeneracy, um, that for a number of reasons, um, primarily the kind of general, like, first of all, a lot of times these, these centers are like local centers for immigrant or expat communities of people from Asia who tend to be more culturally conservative. Um, also, there tends to be more of an emphasis on um, authenticity in terms of the transmission, in terms of the tradition, which keeps things um, it's in line often to not always, definitely. And, and it, and it kind of it can vary greatly. But compared to number one, kind of secular mindfulness centers or num or number two, centers that are headed by Westerners, which um, there's a lot of overlap there, as you can imagine, those places tend to be cesspools of just the kind of California Dharma stuff that we talked about in the episode about California Dharma, you know, the Gwyneth Paltrow vagina egg stuff. And and to say nothing of just like, you know, any any amount of garbage and nonsense. Um, uh, if, if, you're at a, if you're at a Zen place and and you want to test out whether or not it's it's been corrupted by that sort of stuff, ask them about the famous koan where Nansen cuts a cat in half. And uh, generally, 
the the more liberal they are, the more they'll fall all over themselves to do a bunch of historiography about how he actually didn't really cut the cat in half. He just pantomimed it or all this other stuff. When it clearly says in in the material that cat was slapped cut in half. That's funny. Then uh, find a cat, pick it up, and shake it at him, and say, "Answer me." Yeah. Yeah, well, slap, Todd, slap your teacher in the face with your sandals. <laughs> Todd Whalen in the chat asked a question. He says, I looked up Zen centers for where I am and all I'm getting is spas. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, there's just going to be a lot of that. And, and that sort of speaks into what I was going to say, which is maybe I don't know how feasible this is. And, and I, I guess it's probably not necessarily all that appropriate for beginners. But I do think um, um, it's not in some ways the worst thing that uh at a certain level your best bet really is to like do the research do the learning and then take a trip find a teacher that you think you connect with and then go visit them somewhere or find when they're visiting somewhere nearby or go and see them in thailand or in um you know india or whatever uh, you know there's there's um there's absolutely things that you can do. And while it is kind of inconvenient and it can be expensive, um, there was a whole period in Tibetan history where, uh, you know, the, the Tibetans had sort of already received Buddhism to some extent. They'd already been a Buddhist society, but they had been, you know, the, the, the empire collapsed and there was a lot of um, confusion and people didn't really know what was up. And, and, and um, there was, but there was still a lot of activity happening in India. So a lot of Tibetans just went on this very long, very dangerous journey to India to learn the Dharma, to meet the masters, to to pick up texts and bring them back and translate them. And yeah, there was risk and expense and people died and it was tough. But there's I, I mean, there's also value in that, I think. I mean, it's not to say that, you know, there you shouldn't find out if there's a nice center around you and try to connect there. But, um, you know, it's definitely... It's definitely also the case that at a certain level, sacrifice will have to be made. And, you know, if you want the real deal, the real deal for the most part exists in Asia. You don't even have to go that far. Like, I mean, within the lineage that I'm that I belong to, there's the KTD Center in upstate New York, which I mean, you know, Ken Pocarthur Rinpoche is there. So it's not you don't have to travel all the way across the world to get to that kind of authentic lineage and absolutely no i know you said that you have to it's just that like some it, the idea that everything we're going to expect that everything should have to come to us um it, again it's it would be nice to live in a society and this kind of ties into some other stuff that maybe we could get to later but um or maybe now i mean maybe that's all there is to say on that topic for now unless someone had something else but this you know it would be nice to live in a society where um you know there's monasteries and support for monks and, and monasticism is is a part of the social fabric and there's teachers and you can just go and you know walk the way that europeans for generations um you know and and still in a lot of places you know you just have your neighborhood church and you go to your neighborhood church on sunday and the rhythms of life are the rhythm the liturgical rhythms of um the christian calendar um it would be very very nice to live in a society um that was like that. We don't live in that society yet. Maybe we will someday. I, I think it's probably overall better, but there are definitely also, you know, making things easy in that way also has its own downsides and, and having a sense of like, no, you, you know, if you really want this thing that you, you got to get outside your comfort zone a little bit, don't, don't expect everything to be easy. Don't expect everything to come to you just kind of that simply. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. There's going to be a struggle. There's going to be, I mean, just the path in general is full of ups and downs and difficulties and, getting discouraged and getting overexcited, all those things will be part of it. 
You know, and, and I will like to, I mean, say one thing about just the, as far as the authenticity of the lineage is concerned, it does seem that there is kind of like two sorts of Buddhisms in America. You have the one where it's like focused on the immigrant communities, which is always generally quite conservative and authentic. And then there's the other one, which is more focused on, well, I mean, American converts, and it can be a little bit more variable. And one of the things I do really like about the Tibetan tradition is it's almost more like the cult. I mean, as far as it's presented in the same way that you'd see with the immigrant centers, but then generally speaking, you'll find that the Sangha in this is, I mean, about as white as some Orthodox churches I've been to, which is just hilarious sometimes. Yeah. Well that, I mean, that's just kind of, and that's a, so there's, that's a whole other topic and we can maybe um, get into, but yeah, there's definitely, um, Again, Buddhism is an elite religion. It has very little to offer um, at, at, in, in the initial stages of transmission. Like it, it's it's difficult for people to understand. And and um, one one thing I have noticed is there's a um, what is it the uh, not uh, oh man I forget Nichiren. There's a there's a heavily black component to the Nichiren community, which I find hilarious, which is great. Really, yeah, yeah, SGI yeah. yeah has a lot of black people there like yeah yes, which is great that's good for them if that becomes a thing for them like so you know that's oh, awesome that's great. I, I have no you know, idea. Yeah. yeah yeah i would be fully supportive of like a a, a black buddhist like set yeah. or, or why not that would actually yeah what that i don't why see not? that doing anything but helping things exactly yep um so but anyway yeah no it's uh you 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 yeah, that's a that's a whole other topic. Um, and then of course some of those whites are like fellow whites, and, and there's, there's definitely <laughs> yeah, they're that, really um, overrepresented. Let's put yes. it that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, it it's it's what I'll say is this, and I, I've mentioned this before, but I, I think we're gonna we have a, um, some new listeners, and and it's it's definitely good to to say it again. Um, the I have interacted with a lot of people who have been around um, the Buddhist scene for for you know a long time in, in many cases people who have been around for decades there are definitely people who are like um left-leaning or you know would would maybe be reliably vote for democrats so to speak I, but none of them are sjw types none of the ones that i respect and 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 for the most part people who take it seriously and people who do the things like even if they are kind of quite lefty in their in their sort of um general inclination what what in my experience what i found is people people who are genuine practitioners people who are um sincerely committed to you know trying to learn the dharma and to and to improve you know to to do good avoid evil and purify the mind which is like the core of of buddhism um there's there isn't a whole lot of space for for like you know oh and and therefore drag queen story hour like it, it just doesn't really exist in that way. It's not, you know, they 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 can talk shit about Trump and but but then at the same, you know, there uh, I'm thinking in particular of one um, older guy I know who is like a I very much respect him, and you know he said like, look, he was talking to other people who were like, you know, kind of more politically on the same thing. They were like, he was like, look, you think Trump is your problem? Trump is not your problem. Your mind is your problem. You know, Trump could be replaced by, you know, insert your favorite politician tomorrow. It would not improve your life, would not improve your situation. If, if anything, it might make your situation worse because now you think certain things have been solved when in reality it's just giving you an excuse not to do the work of purifying your own mind. Um, and I think that's really 
I think that's true. And I think that's very profound. And, and that's a, not a perspective that you're going to get in a kind of California Dharma environment. It's not a perspective you're really going to get in a secular mindfulness environment. It is a perspective that you're going to get from left wing ish Buddhists that are genuine and, 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 and actually, you know, are, are bringing something to the table that's meaningful. Let's um, let's uh, go through some questions. We have our uh, backlog of questions from previous week, and we're getting some good ones here. So, DK, do you want to plow into another one of our previous week's questions? Yeah, um, let's 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 talk about this because we're sort of on this on this general topic. We got one one question um, that was. Um, let's say well, there's two related questions here. So one is your take. On the so there's a question. It's not a question, but it's uh, what is our take on the appeal of Buddhism versus Hinduism to Westerners, and more specifically, Westerners who are interested in ancient Aryan spirituality? Uh, number two, relatedly, uh, that we, like the Dalai Lama, seem to discourage Westerners from converting to Buddhism, but we also think Buddhism has a bright future in America. Um, can we elaborate? Um, and the reason I lump these questions together is because it's sort of all connected to this question of, you know, as we said, we were talking about before, like white people in, in the Sangha and what's going on with that. Um, I'll, I'll say first off that it's not it's not that I'm I don't think any of us are necessarily just certainly not discouraging Westerners from converting to Buddhism. Um, what, what I'm what I'm not interested in doing really so much is trying to get Christians to stop being Christian. I think Christianity and Western civilization are, I would say, probably just about inextricably linked, um, particularly in Europe. Now, um, that doesn't mean that if someone is a Christian that they, you know, that, that they has some interest that they may not, you know, be ultimately folded into the Buddhist thing. That's that's fine. I'm not. It, it's more about like that. That's not the point. That's not the point of what we're doing here. And, and it's also important to keep in mind that, like, first of all, Buddhism is a, an English word that doesn't really have a direct analog. You're not like directly translating some Sanskrit term or some Tibetan or Thai, as far as I'm aware, or Pali word with the word Buddhism. Like the, the kind of indigenous way of thinking about the tradition in the broadest terms is Buddha Dharma or just Dharma, which is like, you know, it, it, it's not it's not an ism. It's not really exactly a religion in the way that we tend to conceptualize religion, which tends to be kind of derived from certain Protestant ways of thinking about what a religion is um, that don't even necessarily apply to like ortho, you know, or, um, Eastern Orthodoxy or, or Catholicism to say nothing of like, you know, non-Christian religions. So there's that issue. Um, but beyond that, there's really this problem of, you know, I, I, I like, Fundamentally, what is Buddha Dharma is do good, avoid evil, purify the mind. Now, what we consider good is, well, sorry, does, does somebody want to jump in? I Yeah. Please. Yeah, I have a word that I like to use to describe, like, so, you know, the question you're talking about what Buddhism is, there's a word, praxeology. So I'm going to give you the definition of praxeology. It's the study of those aspects of human action that can be grasped a priori. In other words, it is concerned with a conceptual analysis and logical implications of preference, choice, means, and schemes, and so forth. So it's not necessarily a religion. It's not necessarily an ideology. The best way to describe it is it's a type of praxeology. That's that. If you'll look that up and and think about what that word means, 
it's like a set of analyses and then corresponding praxis for those conclusions. I think that kind of describes the general category of things to which the Dharma belongs. Yeah, that, I mean, that's certainly at a first approximation um, is, is a good way to, to think about it. So, so in terms of, so in terms of like why, um, like what is, you know, what is the appeal? I, I think, I think the, the appeal is, um, again, I, I, I have nothing but respect for the Christian tradition and, and I have doubts that European civilization will make it through these troubles that we're heading towards, um, without Christianity or that the European civilization that comes out on the other side will not be Christian or shouldn't. I, and I think in, in a, I think it should be Christian. I would like it to be Christian personally. Um, I think America is different. I think we don't have the same in the United States. We don't have the same kind of blood and soil connection to the Christian faith. I think part of it too is um, for, you know, reasons that aren't really that important, but, but are, you know, kind of historical um, Americans are very, practically focused and while that's not i wouldn't say that that's not the case for christianity that this practical focus has led to a real like people are very interested in meditation people are very interested in you know what can what can a religion like do for me in a very like immediate and material way i, I think this is at in addition to this kind of american worship of money and and sort of fascination with hucksterism and susceptibility to hucksterism that's kind of been in the american character all along um, I think that's what why we see things like the prosperity gospel that are so successful and so widespread um, is because the prosperity gospel, this idea of like, you know, oh, God wants us to be rich. And if we just if you give the televangelist however much money, then God will reward you 10 times over or whatever. Um, that kind of attitude of like, but what can this religion do for me um, and, and how quickly can it do it for me um, is very widespread. And and so I think Buddhism has a certain kind of appeal to people with that mindset, because, again, like if you've never sat down and meditated, I, I urge you. It's not that it's not that meditation is the be all end all of Buddhism, but like if you sit and just follow your breath, just like allow yourself to be don't force your breath, just follow your breath, allow the breath to to be go in and out and just pay attention and count your breaths and do that for 10 minutes a day for a week, a week, 30 days at, let's say 30 days. If you can, if you can do that for 10 minutes a day or five minutes a day, I am guaranteeing you, you will notice you will be more calm. You will be more relaxed. You'll be more focused. You'll be more attentive in, in when you're not on the cushion. Yes, it has. And, and look, those benefits are nice. That's not what it's ultimately about. This is my single biggest critique of the secular mindfulness moment, movement, which we can maybe save for another time. But I'm not saying that this is like the essence of Buddhism or all there is to it. I'm simply saying that the practical benefits are right there. You can have them basically right away. You don't even have to be Buddhist. I mean, you don't have to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. You can be, I mean, what's there to, like, if you're a Christian, if you're someone, you know, hopefully we can do ecumenical outreach and we're reaching some number of Christians. Like, Christians, of course, you know, have their own breathing exercises, but do those. The point is, people are interested in what can benefit them immediately. And I think that there, there's, a, there's a certain rightness of, like, People want to see things immediately. People want to see things practically. And, and America starved for spirituality and, and Buddhism. And, and for, you know, again, complicated historical reasons, there's a lot of difficulty um, 
believing in Christianity. Some of that in our thing, I think, particularly is connected with the Jewish roots of Christianity, which obviously can be, you know, Christians can respond in various ways that I think are quite appropriate, but it doesn't matter. There's always going to be this lingering suspicion in some corners and, um, or at least, you know, for now. So it, it provides, I think, a way for people to understand, have a larger contextual kind of meta narrative framework for their lives that gives them immediate practical benefits and is connected to an, a, a very powerful intellectual tradition and, and kind of is a complete, is a complete system. I mean, I, I, again, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think it weren't correct and it weren't a complete system. Um, so that, that's roughly what I would say, but I'm curious, or you, I, I want to hear what you have to say. Um, well, uh, maybe specifically on, on what DK? Nothing, just, just, gen I mean, you don't, if you don't have anything, that's fine. I was just... Uh... Well, I one thing I, I wanted to say, it's sort of um, tangential to what you're talking about, but you've mentioned on this show several times now um, your distinction between how you view the future of Europe uh, religiously and the future of America. And, of course, I know that you've said that these are, these are speculations on your part and you're not trying to, like, uh, lay down exactly what's going to happen. But just, you know, uh, like you said, um, th these are things that have occurred to you. And um, I would just say that probably to add some nuance to what you're saying and not to contradict it, but probably there are aspects of of um, American culture that will hang on to uh, sort of a traditional Christianity, you know, because America is so big and the situation on the yeah. ground yeah, yeah. In, in East Texas is so different than the situation on the ground in, you know, New York City or whatever. So there, there's that. And then also on the flip side, the same for Europe. There, There is a blood and soil connection to uh, Christianity in Europe. But then, of course, one can also observe that the the most like hyper anti-theist, uh, you know, like militant atheists and stuff uh, tend to be like in Northwest Europe, you know, and um, you find, you know, entire cities and societies there where like all of the churches are just now like bookstores or like cocktail bars or whatever that now, but that doesn't disvalidate your uh, invalidate your point, of course, just to say that, well, you know, if things were to go the way that you see it, you might see like a, a Christian tinged Buddhist America and a Buddhist tinged Christian Europe. Or something absolutely. Like that. I mean, absolutely. Yeah, sorry. Go on. Kagi. Yeah. Kagi, please. You know, in, in some ways it, it actually does seem like it, Europe might actually be um, because just at the degree of secularization in the culture, there is a lot more deep and a lot more broad than it is in here in the United States. And so I think, you know, for those kind of people for whom these religions based around uh, Orthodox belief in something is a troublesome thing to deal with. There is a certain attractiveness to Buddhism because it's almost more like the opposite. It's not believe this, then do this. It's do this, and then you'll come to some kind of belief about the subject. And that makes it very attractive for these kind of secularized people. And that's really the kind of person who I, I think might benefit the most from Buddhism. When you think about like, especially in America, when you think about the American character, and I really like the DK mentioned like the... Uh, the hucksterism and the susceptibility to hucksterism. I mean, America is really like a post-enlightenment project and the character of America has always been very complex. Um, and especially now, you know, we're a very young place. Things are very complex. There, um, we have a lot of media hyper reality. It's a very confusing time. 
and there's a, a smorgasbord of options for anybody that takes a look for them. So I think really the appeal is that like, it's just like you guys have been saying, you know, when, when you walk into the Buddhism store, the first thing you see is, all right, here is a set of tools that you can use right now. And you're not required to believe anything, but you can do this yourself. You can investigate it for yourself. And that's very, very appealing. I mean, it's almost like a lot of the appeal, the appeal of Ross Perot when he ran for president was he was essentially saying, it's just that simple. It's just that simple, which is people really like to hear that in complex times. Uh, and, and the same thing is going on here where, you know, you're given these tools, sit down, meditate. You can read these books. You're not required to believe it. You can find out if it's true completely on your own. And that's, that's the appeal. And that's why, um, that we, you know, that we all agree that these type of secularized, even people that are, that are really like mentally secularized, but still have like a nominal Christian belief. It's, it'd be really good for them. Cool. Um, I mean, it's, it is actually interesting though. I, I guess getting back to the topic of what's the appeal of Buddhism, it's, I think in a way that you don't really have to make sure there's, there's almost this struggle I found with my experience with Christianity, where you have to ensure that you have precisely the correct set of propositional beliefs about a particular topic. And with Buddhism, that's not really the case. And I think that that's something that's very attractive about it. And that might be part of the appeal as to why some people really like it. Yeah. Um, some of these questions on this list, I, I feel like we're already kind of addressing um, by by doing this. Is there another one particularly, uh, Dharmakirti, that you well, want to hit? I think, I mean, again, we, we've talked about this a little to some extent, but it's a good, it's a kind of evergreen topic. And it's also something that maybe um, deserves separate um, attention. What does Buddhism have to say about race? Hinduism, for example, has obsession with Aryans. I don't know if I'd quite put it that way. Um, and Judaism is a racial religion. Certainly that's true. So how does Buddhism view race? Um, the, the simple answer um, is that it doesn't really. Like race is not a particularly meaningful category um, in the sense that, that um, people in our thing often uh, think about it. I, I would say that, that there are roughly like, I, I, I think that there are like in broad spectrum or let, let's say there's two poles roughly in our thing, as I see it, of ways of looking at race. One poll is a kind of straight up, you know, NSDAP kind of um, almost uh, like a metaphysical view of race as like, you know, racial groupings are essential categories that are real, that are um, kind of correspond in some way to ultimate reality, that, um, uh, you know, people that, that each race has certain indelible kind of characteristics and uh, and so on. Some of this, I think, in, in, in a kind of back in a, in a strange way comes from uh, like the, the Bible via occultism or like Christianity and or like certain kinds of ideas about Christianity via certain kind of occultic frameworks and where the idea is that basically God created the races and he created them in a certain way. And because God created things in a certain way um, that they are that way. And this has to do also, I think with, with a kind of uh, anti like a certain broadly sort of creationist view of biology. Um, then on the other side, which is where I came out of and where I still kind of largely am 
Um, first of all, that philosophically, the idea of there being any kind of inherent essence to anything is nonsense. Um, this is, in broad strokes, the philosophical position called nominalism, um, which is that any kind of category is just a name that you're applying to multiple different things. But in reality, all there are are the multiple different things. There is no like real category out there in some kind of form realm. This is like, this is famously sort of what Plato thought. I mean, it's I'm, I'm vastly oversimplifying, but but to vastly oversimplify the idea is that, you know, there are no real categories. There are the There is no realm of ideas where categories exist. So now that doesn't mean that, um, you know, when you're, when you're analyzing things statistically, that there aren't certain patterns that emerge or th that these patterns are irrelevant or not important or something that shouldn't be paid attention to. I think obviously, you know, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing and saying what I'm saying if I, if I didn't think that. Um, but I don't think I, the flip side of that is, is, um, personally, and I think this is where, where, where I would say in broad strokes, um, I would say the, the Buddhist tradition comes down is, is it's not that like certain races have certain, um, inherent characteristics it's that you know certain population groups for example even just like men and women you know men are a certain way um and women are a certain way and on average and you can't just sort of you know by a active ideological will override that in, in the name of your insane um political beliefs to try to like pretend well these things are going to be the same now because i've decided a priori that they have to be the same that's going to lead to a lot of suffering um at the same time, and I'll conclude with this, is uh, one thing that's really, really centrally important to keep in mind is what's called the 18 freedoms and advantages, of uh, which is basically what it means to have a precious human birth is that you have these freedoms and advantages. Not all human births are precious. In particular, you know, human birth is precious um, in, the sense, in the sense that you have the ability to engage with the Dharma, which means you need to have a properly functioning mind. You can't be, you know, mentally disabled. Um, and you, you, you have to live in a place where there's civilization. And that does not apply to large parts of the world. So, um, it, you know, and this idea that we're going, so in a sort of broader political context, the idea that we're going to import billions and billions of people from places where there have never, has never really functionally existed any kind of civilization. Um, you know, I say this a lot, but I'll say it again. Europe 2000 years ago looked very, very similar to Europe today. Africa 2000 years ago looked very, very similar to Africa today. You're not going to get Africa to look like Europe by importing um, billions of Africans into Europe. You're going to get Europe looking like Africa, right? And that means the end of the ability of European peoples and peoples in general of, of any race who have the capability to engage with the Dharma, if you destroy your civilization by importing mass numbers of people that are fundamentally, um, you know, incapable of doing it, or like Muslims who are just hostile to Christianity and to Buddhism, um, you know, it's, it's going to end poorly. That's not in accord with the Dharma. So I, I mean, again, so it, it, I mean, this is a bit nuanced. It's not exactly about race in, in the sense that, you know, national socialists often kind of talk about race or think about race. Um, but but it, it's not completely different either. One of the root like problems in this area of thought is that it may okay it may be that categories only have a nominal existence, and that may be something that you can get to philosophically. But just because categories quote unquote aren't real doesn't negate in any way our phenomenological perception and experience that 
there might as well be real categories because that's the best way to think about things, you know? Like, yeah, I mean, like, like again, you know, I, yeah, sorry, go on. Well, just to say, like, with the table, right? Like, you know, from, from a equally true from a uh, I don't like to play this card all the time but it's it is a fact that it is equally true from the perspective of contemporary physics science and buddhism that there is no table there is there are there are particles that have a certain arrangement in space and even that from a you know physical perspective in terms of like particle physics is you know it's kind of it's basically an illusion i mean the, the, if you go drill down to the subatomic level you, then you don't actually know the, the idea of a particle having a location doesn't actually make any sense so then you multiply that by however many particles are in the table like where is the tape what does it even mean to be the table however you know as a kind of gross mid-sized dry object you can put your coffee on the table you can put your feet you can use the table you can chop it up and burn it for firewood it is practical it has a utility it's it, it's not that you you it has no ability to, to, to exert any kind of causal influence on the world just because it doesn't exist in the way we think of it as being a solid stable singular kind of object it doesn't have that kind of existence um and and that kind of existence is is, a, is incoherent doesn't doesn't there's no such thing nevertheless causality functions um and same thing i i would say with with human population groups or, or races so to speak yeah the wall the wall is there you know you can you can theorize about the wall not being there if you walk into it you're going to hit your head you know it's just a matter of being practical about things and on a spectrum of colors if there's a you know it goes from red to orange to yellow to green to blue and it's all blended together and you could say well where's the red and where's the blue but if you put the red and the blue next to each other and try to claim they're no different that's just being retarded that's motivated tactical nihilism and um i, I think we all reject that on this call and I, I do think that fundamentally the the dharma rejects that too in fact yeah it does i mean look like taking the table as an example uh, tables are conventional they are nominal but the referent of the word table is phenomenologically real like you can put your cup on it and it is a table conventionally but it's not a table ultimately and furthermore to back this point up more we don't draw lines around things where nature puts joints you know what i mean someone who came from a culture who didn't have tables would not see that as a table they would see that as like maybe a five-part wood sculpture do you understand so yeah they're conventional but that doesn't do anything to negate what our experience actually is and that's the two, two, the uh, the two truths doctrine, which, if you don't understand the two two truths doctrine, you're going to be you're going to go through your life being confused. I think I think that's pretty fundamental. Yeah, we could even maybe talk about that at some point. I mean, we we had an, an episode on emptiness. I think a little, as with a lot of topics, we should have um, we should revisit them. Um, yeah, I would love that. But um, yeah, do are we are we done with this for now, or do we want to do we want to maybe move on? Yeah, let's do another. Here, here is a great question, and maybe this is also kind of like a framing thing, and, and, and it's something to um, hopefully we'll, we'll see. It says, to what extent do Buddhists in general and we personally, quote unquote, believe in Buddhism? I've never totally understood the relationship between philosophy, metaphysics, and cosmology, theology, spiritualism in Buddhism. Coming from a Christian perspective, how much of a Buddhist system requires belief or faith? And what does it look like in the reality of Buddhist life? You know, what's interesting about that is I've heard one school of thought I've heard about this is really the only thing you actually have to have believe is that you have to have confidence that the four noble truths and Buddhism leads to a cessation of suffering. 
that's I guess the de minimis version of it is just if you have confidence that Buddhism and the and the practices of Buddhism can lead to a reduction in your suffering, that's enough to have a fruitful Dharma practice. You just have to believe or at least think there's a chance that it'll work. That's it's that simple. Because it is actually interesting. There are definitely points within Buddhism where I'm not a hundred percent sure of what to make of it. Like particularly some big cosmological propositions that I've seen within like certain parts of the Tibetan tradition, for instance, um, ideas like um, the model of the world as um, arranged between four continents around Meru. But then I, I actually was having this conversation with DK before he pointed out that there's actually a certain that, you know, with a lot of these, they're designed not to be really taken absolutely literally. Like there's a certain hidden or esoteric or symbolic meaning, which is actually more real or more meaningful than the words on the paper read just, you know, conventionally. And so I think with a lot of those um, propositions that you come across, that's probably the way to go. At least that's just my impression. I'll say for uh, as far as Zen goes, it's actually faith isn't so important beyond what we've already discussed. We try and cultivate what's called the great doubt. If there's something you can't doubt that indicates a sticking point, uh, that's that's an, you're obstructed there. You have to cultivate the great doubt and become the great doubt, and then that is that's how you you uh, see into your own self nature and become Buddha. The great doubt um, it, it touches everything. I don't really have like a a great philosophical answer to this question. I think it's an excellent question, but I will just say from my own experience, I what I do is I just like for example the crazy stuff in the Lotus Sutra. Um, for our listeners, the Lotus Sutra has got these <laughs> really fantastical descriptions of like, uh, just like thousands of like massive Buddhas and then tiny Buddhas like coming out of other Buddhas and stuff and like a million petaled flower. And it just goes, it's crazy. Uh, it sounds, it reads a little bit like an acid trip, frankly. Um, and then the Buddha expounds the Dharma and everything. I just enjoy those for what they are. I just, I like to read that stuff. I uh, imagine it um, and then take a little bit the approach that um, that Kagi was talking about, like maybe mull it over in my mind a little bit and, and try to think about, you know, what is the, what are the esoteric meanings of this or, or what is what is this text designed? What is it trying to evoke in my mind, right? Whether that's wonder or a sense of uh, devotion or who knows. But when it comes time to actually being a Buddhist and doing Buddhist things, um, you know, it starts with like the very basic practices, which is, you know, generosity and morality and, and uh, concentration, meditation and insight. Those, those, these kind of core things. Uh, it, it, well, frankly, like we talked about last week, it comes back to the, to the eightfold path. Uh, for anyone who didn't listen last week, you know, the Eightfold Path is sort of the contents of the Fourth, fourth Noble Truth, which is the end of suffering or the path to the end of suffering. Um, and those things are just, you know, right view, right concentration, right action, right speech, etc. Um, and those you don't really need uh, to get into cosmology to, to do those things. I mean, maybe with right view, you could argue a little bit. But for the most part, practically speaking, you, you sort of just skip all over, just right over that stuff. And um, I think it's important to, rem to remember what the Buddha was doing when he became the Buddha, which was sitting quietly and meditating, right? So uh, Dharmakirti has pointed out before that uh, maybe considering 
meditation practice as the beginning or the 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 core thing of Buddhism it can be a bit a bit misleading and maybe a bit of a mistake for practitioners because there's very important teachings about generate generosity and morality and, and some other things that are that are super core and super key. However, um, meditation is obviously a big big part of it, um, and frankly, you know, it sort of takes up more time in a certain sense because the other things are things you should be doing basically all the time. But well, I suppose meditation is too. But anyway, I, I'm rambling a bit, but um, the gradations between you know what's cosmology and what's just uh, you know workaday philosophy. I just it's not that we couldn't tease it out if we really worked at it, but I just don't think it's that important. I guess. Yeah, it's really. Well, not. Oh, please go on. I, I just don't. It's it, that's something to do away later on. I mean, there's so there's so many more important things than pinning down whether or not some some cosmology is true or if it's part philosophy and and all this. It's just. Like, I, th I agree with Aura that it's just frankly not that important. One thing I'll say is, I mean, so uh, to the extent that the the question was, you know, sort of a personal question or that was framed initially as a personal question about, you know, my own or our own personal um, mode of engagement with the world. I, I, I do. I mean, I, I um, it is absolutely, you know, I, I guess you could say I have I believe or I, I prefer to say I have faith, um, faith is a word that it does map onto a Sanskrit word, which is shraddha, um, um, depa in Tibetan. And um, and there's actually different Tibetan words for like solid faith or, or this kind of thing. But the point is um, the, how to say, it's not that faith is unimportant, but it's not on the list, for example, of the six perfections, which for the, for the Mahayana, um, you know, generosity, discipline, patience, um, uh, meditative concentration, uh, you know, and so on are uh, very, very foundational. It's, it's faith isn't quite in that category, which is not to say that it's unimportant, but that's not really how it's conceptualized. It's, it's more like, you know, um, really being certain in your understanding of the of the cause and effect relationship of karma. That that at, at a certain level is really the kind of foundational thing about um, about uh, the relationship between faith and practice. As far as I think the kind of overall framing question here, I think one of the biggest hurdles that people have to deal with, which was actually I, I sort of interacted with the person who asked this question, and that was kind of one of the things that this, he, he went to, which is, I think, what, kind of what one of the things motivating this question, and it's on a lot of people's minds, has to do with reincarnation. And this is, you know, this is obviously a kind of a, a loaded topic and a tricky topic to talk about. I, I'll say this, and, and I'm curious if you guys disagree or to what extent you disagree. To me, um, number one, in the words of a teacher that I respect greatly, you know, reincarnation is not something you believe in. It is a fact. And that's, that's true. Um, you know, it, it reincarnate you, it is possible if you are, you know, um, blessed or, or fortunate or, or advanced in meditation to remember certain of your past lives. Buddhas remember all of their past lives. Um, there are philosophical reasons, which maybe we could, you know, go into another time or maybe now, I don't know, but the point is that, you know, there, there's a very, um, there, there are uh, good philosophical reasons why consciousness has to be, must be a continuity, and that death is not 
cannot be the end of that continuity any more than birth or even conception is the beginning of that continuity. Um, but the point is, um, you know, as far as, as far as you like believing in reincarnation, I, yeah, I, I would say it's not something that I like, it, it's not something that I, I, at a personal level that I have, um, any kind of like belief in, in the sense that I feel like it's like, oh, well, you know, I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me and I don't really get it, but it's something that the tradition teaches and therefore I'm going to believe it, even though it sort of contradicts like my own, but it's not like that at all. I am ironclad in my philosophical and logical understanding that this is how the, this is how samsara or so to speak, the universe, the multiverse kind of works. Um, this is how it sort of would have to work in order to be the kind of thing that appears in the way that it appears to us in terms of our ordinary experience. And I, I would even go so far as to say as, you know, while you can be a, you know, good person in various ways and, and you could even, you know, maybe have respect for the Buddhist tradition and do various Buddhist practices. I don't really think you can be a Buddhist ultimately um, and deny reincarnation, which is, I think is sort of the cash value of this question for a lot of people. But I, I'm now I'm really very curious what you all have to say. I mean, personally, I believe it's. I, I definitely believe it. Actually, it, that rebirth is a. It happens. I, I. It's maybe something that, to an extent, I am kind of taking a little bit of a jump of faith in thinking is true. But I think that there's good reasons to argue for it happening. Um, as far as people who might have an issue with it, um, I guess the way to look at it is, for instance, um, I once had kind of a discussion with someone about. Uh, Guru Rinpoche and the story that he was, I mean, I'm sure you've heard of it, that he was originally born from a lotus on a lake in Odiana. Um, the comment he had on it was, did this happen? I don't know. I wasn't there. Keep an open mind about it. I yeah. will say, according on reincarnation, um, if I, I don't think I have the epistemological position, nor does anybody to say it does happen or it doesn't happen. Right. Uh, maybe they do if they actually experienced it. And I would, and I would further posit that what would reincarnate besides some kind of particular self? So if we ask ourselves, this has come up before, like, what is the consciousness of a Buddha? Like what's well, pure, it's unconditioned, it's unattached. There's no specificity to it. So in a sense, if that's what we really are, if we are the Buddha nature, which we are, then you could even look at people who are alive at the same time as you as contemporaneous reincarnations of yourself. So, so that's my answer. To yeah. It. I mean, there's different kind of like, and particularly from a tantric context, it, it, in some ways it kind of, it kind of gets like simultaneously easier and harder to talk like language in a sense does less, but the, the way of explaining things kind of opens up. And so you say, yeah, you know, all look, what, what kind of a question even is this? Like all sentient beings, the, the nature of all sentient beings is Buddha. In fact, that Buddhahood, if you were sort of properly seeing reality the way that reality really is, you know, you would already have this experience of yourself and all sentient beings as Buddhas because that is actually what they are. And it's 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 only our own kind of delusion that yeah. is forcing us. It's like we project like all the shit and the nastiness of samsara of, of, of you know, like how our how bad things are kind of out when really it's just that's our own karmic baggage that we're just sort of imputing on our experience. So there, that, that's definitely one very, you know, that, that is a kind of more, that is a linguistic way of talking about reality in a way that's better or more accurate than, you know, the ordinary way. But if you're, if you're gonna give like a kind of ordinary account in terms that's, you know, not so heavily influenced by kind of that sort of ultimate type perspective, then you would say like, well, look, 
you know, and, and the, the question about the self, this is a, a common thing. Well, if there's no self, because Buddhism says there's no self, what is it that reincarnates? You're looking at it wrong. There is no self because all there is is a mass of there's like there's a there's a mass of physical kind of processes and there's a mass of mental kind of processes and these are mutually um, affecting each other every moment moment by moment. The point is that this these processes these kind of causal processes just they don't have a beginning and they don't have a, an end because no causal process samsara is itself the, the multiverse is beginningless and endless. So in just the same way, you know, as long as we sort of have these causal processes going on in our unified body minds, we're going to have these issues. And that's why like nirvana, this idea of attaining the final goal is the idea of bringing those causal processes in a sense to an end. And that's actually, uh, interesting. Uh, uh, that's actually interesting that you were mentioning about the, um, the issue about the, the, the supposed conflict between the non-existence of the self and the idea of rebirth, because apparently, I mean, this one, the founder of Dalit Buddhism, B.R. Ambedkar, famously argued that really the Buddha was arguing re rebirth doesn't happen because this would be a contradiction in terms. You know, you're already having this experience of seeing everything as Buddha and being Buddha, because that's how things really are. So what other experience could you be having? It's more the problem that you don't you don't get that you get it. It's less the problem that you simply can't see it. And I, I think that. That you're, I, I love that. Yes. I mean, it's it, like my teacher said to me is you took the tafata and folded it up and pretended like it wasn't there. But that's like covering up the covers with the covers. You need to take them all off. I mean, it's it's sort of superficial that you don't get it. I mean, it's not it's not possible to have any other experience. It's it's as I said before that you you don't get that you get it, but this is why it's so. I mean, just maybe circle back around and um, uh, maybe conclude here for now. Is um, this is why it's so important to have a teacher, um, and in particular, you know, a, a real human being that you can trust that is not some random racist with a pot with a you know podcasting microphone <laughs> on on the internet. Um, because, you know, a teacher is, is someone that you can rely on, that you can ask these kinds of questions, that can point these things out, that you can have a personal relationship with and, and bring these things. Um, I mean, it all, I'm, I, you know, when I first encountered this stuff, it's like it all sounds very nice. And I, I sort of did my best. And, and you know, I, I, I think I did OK. And, and but but if, if it hadn't been for my teachers and, the, you know, many um, authority figures, so to speak, that I respected that were out of, you know, immensely kind enough to share their wisdom and experience with me and, you know, deal with me and my various kind of problems and, and so on, um, I would never be where I am um, today. And I think that's true for pretty much all of us and, and, and anyone who's sort of had any kind of level of serious engagement with this tradition. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it, the words sound nice and they are nice. And I think there's a level at which you can kind of get it just by just by hearing the words. But you, you really do need to have some kind of relationship with with um, somebody who's trustworthy. Yeah, I definitely. want to say that. Um, sorry, no, no, I don't mean to. Um, <laughs> I know you don't. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to. That wasn't singling you out or anything. Oh, certainly not. No, I, I did uh, interpret it that way. But uh, I've been very quiet on our discussion here uh, answering that question. And DK, I wanted to say that your original your first answer to to this um where you talked about the the certainty that you have about the about reincarnation uh, i think you're a very um you know eloquent speaker and erudite person and i think that that little spiel that you gave there is one of the most eloquent and erudite things that you've said and i i could not agree more strongly um 
And I just wanted to add that uh, for our listeners, I wanted to give a little bit of encouragement because from uh, in a certain way, we at least myself, uh, we, we've been sort of separating out these these complex doctrinal things with our our and putting it alongside an exhortation to people just you know meditate and you can figure these things out for yourself and you know don't worry too much about the the big picture stuff and i would just want to encourage people um by by saying that in fact you can verify these things um bit by bit through practice and my understanding of reincarnation for example is also extremely solid and for for a couple of reasons one i think that if you follow the logic of the arguments um i think it's it's quite excellent but two and i harp on this sometimes you really can observe the law of karma uh in your own life in your own mind and you can when you start to observe how your own karma operates in your own mind, in your own experience and your lived experience. It, it, when I first started to, I was like, I can't believe this. Like, what am I getting wrong here? Like this is working so well. Uh, Then as it starts to get more solid, you, the, the doubt really went away in my mind about karma. And then you can start to get a view into yeah, into awakening, little glimpses, little little glimpses of the deathless, where you see that there's something there that's not karmically active, or if it is, it's on a much you know much more subtle level. That's probably what I'm seeing, right? Um, and then when you go back to sort of the the regular hubbub of daily life kind of karma, you it's almost like a little smile on your face because you you know that there's another level. There's there's something else going on underneath all that that. That you can you can retreat to uh, retreat might not be the the right word but you can rely on something solid that you can you can have as a as something to rely on um, in the craziness of the world and then when you see how you can sort of burn away some of your karma even if it's in very small ways you know sort of uh, you, yeah in, in very small ways or you can avoid creating more bad karma for yourself and your life starts to get better as a result and you just you feel more happy it's that is the kind of verification of the of these somewhat obscure sounding um teachings that that i mean that's where the rubber hits the road that's what it's all about and when you combine when for i when i combine these lived experiences that in about which there's zero doubt in my mind when i combine that with a sort of intellectual rational understanding of uh the doctrine of of reincarnation um, then, then that really gives you this foundation and these questions stop being so vexing because you can actually see it. So again, to finish my long ramble here, I want to encourage people. It's not that far in the future to, to start seeing and understanding and believing some of these things. You don't, it's not like you, you just have to sit there and, you know, be a, a there are intermediate stages between being a beginner and then being this totally enlightened Buddha. Like it will get better. You will get wiser. You will start seeing insight into these things uh, step by step. And I'm sure I have a long, long way to go, but the getting those first steps and those first bricks in the building built gives you all the faith in the world that you need, that you're, you're on the right track and, and you should keep going. Uh, at the risk of in devolving into a, um, that was beautifully well, well put. Thank you, Aura. Um, thank you for that. Um, or I think you have more insight than you'll give yourself credit for. 
<laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs> I mean, that sounds exactly like the type of seeing under, uh, seeing completely under karma um, that I'm used to and that people people describe in other places. You know, I think uh, I think you're farther than you than you want to than you will give yourself credit for. Thanks, man. That's nice to hear. Let's uh, we should move on to another question. Well, actually, it was um, I, I, that was the end of the list that I had, and I think we're like a little over an hour. Um, so unless there was, I mean, did you was there anything else you wanted to hit? Or well, um, I think let let's if you unless anybody's in a huge rush, I, let's just take a few minutes here to do some of the ones that are from this live chat today. Okay. Is that all right with people? Yeah. Yes. Um, this is a uh, from Finami uh, says. I have a non-101-102 question. I have heard a guy in the Tibetan tradition say that there are prophecies that say Buddhism and particularly Dzogchen will flourish in the West. Where does this come from? I haven't heard this. Have you guys? Yeah. So this is the, um, this is kind of an interesting thing, and it relates, I guess, closely to um, what I was talking about before. But so Dzogchen is a sort of Tibetan um, system or practice um, that is um kind of it, it's it's one of two it, it's often lumped together with the other kind of highest level teaching which is mahamudra um they are kind of slightly different but the differences are not really relevant for this podcast or and and uh, uh, even internal to the tradition are a matter of some debate but the point is that um Dzogchen, as it's called the great perfection is um is a teaching from the guru rinpoche that kagyu mentioned before who is this uh very interesting figure. He was a sorcerer and kind of miraculously born um, figure who um, uh, went to Tibet uh, in the late 700s and basically did a bunch of things to bring the local Tibetan spirits into line and a bunch of other things as well. He was the personal guru of the Tibetan king and emperor at the time. And um, he... Again, this is like this whole other topic that I, I don't know how much detail I want to go into. But basically, um, th there's a, in Tibet, there's a tradition of what's called treasure literature, which you're basically um, it, it, sometimes it's physical stuff, uh, including like scrolls and physical kind of manuscripts, but also just like little um, treasures, really, you know, physical things that um, Guru Rinpoche left behind for future disciples. Um some of it is uh, what's called mind treasures, which are like teachings that Guru Rinpoche like embedded in the storehouse consciousness to ripen at a certain point in time so that, you know, and to certain disciples of his. Basically, the idea is that tre treasures are revealed by a treasure revealer um, who is a reincarnation of one of Guru Rinpoche's 25 disciples from the time that he was in Tibet. And um, so Dzogchen is basically like the kind of... Uh, consolidation or the essence of these teachings that he gave, which is basically a way to directly um, see the nature of ultimate reality in the moment. And it's a particularly valuable because it's um, like all tantric systems. It's very fast. It's very risky because it can lead you. You can go very down into the Vajra hells and, and burn for a very long time in a very painful way. Um, but you can also ascend very, very quickly. And it's particular and, and, and it's, it's, it's a fast method, and so it's well-suited for the pace of our contemporary society. And there are prophecies in some of these revealed literatures, even from like hundreds of years ago. They're saying, look, there's a time that's going to come um, where, you know, the pace of life is going to be 
just very, very fast where people aren't going to have a lot of time to practice the Dharma and they aren't going to have a lot of patience for, you know, um, these traditional methods and traditional ritual practices that, you know, can take hours or weeks or whatever. Um, and so Guru Rinpoche out of his, like the, the, the sort of, um, insider perspective on him is that he's not just some guy who did a bunch of cool stuff. He's actually like the, the kind of ultimate guru or teacher principle of reality. Um, the, the, the unity of all the different, like the, the three Kayas, the, all like the Buddhas of the three times, like manifest at one particular moment in, in, in our universe system for our, because out of his benefit, out of like this, because the teacher of the principle of reality, just in his infinite kindness, um, felt that this was appropriate thing to do at this time and place. Um, and so he gave us these instructions that we can practice that are, um, something that will lead to great benefit and, and without a whole lot of effort, um, and very quickly. And if that sounds too good to be true, like, I mean, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, it's, you know, try it and see, seek out a Dzogchen master and, and see what happens. It sounds like it maps pretty isometrically to Rinzai sudden awakening style, uh, Southern schools in, it sounds very similar. It, 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 it actually, so this is this whole other, <laughs> I mean, there's like, there's, there's a kind of like materialist quasi or straight up Marxist way you could like look at this and, and purely in terms of like human um like history in, in material terms and yeah it it definitely like so maybe to give a little bit of additional um context just uh you know whatever so at the time there was a the time this was like the, the kind of the early period of the transmission of buddhism into tibet the kind of first wave and the king was interested in buddhism actually there were previous kings who had converted but it wasn't very serious and so this king trisong detson was um he wanted to like, you know, do things. He was like really interested in Buddhism and, and wanted to be Buddhist and wanted to, to do stuff. So he's like, okay, well, let me phone up like the, the, the best master, um, of from India, like the most learned scholar. So, so he called, uh, the, the name of the scholar is Shantarakshita, who is like this really, um, just incredibly learned scholar. And he has a bunch of texts that he wrote that are among the most important texts of the Buddhist Indian, I guess, Buddhist tradition, but really just amazing accomplishments in terms of human intellectual history of, of extremely detailed and, and, and philosophy and, and just great stuff. I can't recommend it enough for people who are interested in Buddhism to, to look at some of the works of Shantarakshita and Shantarakshita went with his disciple, his closest student is sort of like, you know, heart student named Kamalashila. And Kamala Shila was like, you know, continuing the work of Shantarakshita, who like passed away not not too long into this. Probably he was he spent a, some time in Tibet, but but he was already kind of old and and he passed away. Um, at the time, and this would have been like the late 700s. At the time, there was the um, there was this. Um, well, I, maybe I'll back up. So so actually, as they were starting to establish Buddhism in Tibet, um, they were having this problem because Shantarakshita was, you know, extremely learned scholar and a, and a very, um, you know, pure monk in terms of his personal practice, but he wasn't like this kind of, he didn't have, he wasn't like focused on the ritual side of things. He wasn't, um, you know, a, a tantric sorcerer type. And so they were having this problem of when they were building the very first monastery in Tibet, which is called Samye, you can still visit it. The Chinese make it a little difficult, but you can, you can go and you can see it, um, that um, the story is that every night the, the the local spirits and demons that didn't like the idea of you know these competitors um, 
would go and tear down the progress that they had made during the day. And so the King Trisung Detson asked Shantradakshita, like, okay, well, what are we going to do? And he said, well, um, there's this sorcerer named Padmasambhava, which is the sort of given name of Guru Rinpoche. Guru Rinpoche is like a title of respect. means precious guru, precious teacher. Um, he can solve your problem. And so that's when King Trisung Detson sent out the call to Guru Rinpoche. And that's when Guru Rinpoche arrived in Tibet and subdued the local spirits and sort of planted a flag for the Dharma in Tibet that it, it's still there to this day um in as part of that and so these are all like and, and this is kind of like in tibetan in the tibetan kind of mindset or like tibetan self-conception of history the, the the king the scholar or the monk and and the and the and the sorcerer or the guru um you know king trisung dutsun shantarakshita and guru Rinpoche is like a triad of like this is sort of how the various estates of a functioning society of our society but really like you know how we want a dharmic society to work i think it's a very powerful model and, and very important um, but to, to bring it back around to your the what you were you were saying, so Kamala Sheila, the student of um, Shantarakshita, was uh, summoned to what's what, like sort of been mythologized in Tibetan history as this debate, this grand debate, because there was this question of like, okay, well, is enlightenment gradual or sudden? And this is actually like not the best way to think about it, but this is kind of how it gets represented or understood often. And, and the, the representatives were basically Kamala Sheila representing the gradual perspective of the Indian tradition and this Mahayana monk whose name, it's, it's not his name, he's just in, in his history records him as Hashang Mohoyen, but that just means it's a Tibetan corruption of I don't speak Chinese, but basically it's just the Chinese word for Mahayana monk who represented this kind of broad, like basically he was a Chan guy doing Subatist, like sudden enlightenment Chan stuff. And that was that was definitely somebody from the Lynchy school, uh, the Rinsai cool. school. Definitely. Yeah, you 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 know more than than I do about about this that side of things. But so the in the Tibetan historiography, it's like well, Kamala Sheila wins, and the gradual path wins, and you know Chinese people are doing their own stuff over there, but we're going to do like the Indian thing, and it's gradual. In reality, like. First of all, this is not really exactly what Kamala Sheila was about. And there's all kinds of interesting historiographical questions about like, okay, well, what was this debate? Like what really happened there, et cetera. But um, the bottom line is like, while Tibetans inside Tibet and, and in terms of their own kind of self-understanding had to see themselves as like, we're part of this gradual path. Like they, they, they basically found all kinds of interesting ways to sneak, uh, so to speak, um, sudden enlightenment chinese zen stuff into the tradition and there are like you know scholars who say and i think that there's something to this i don't think it i i again to put my cards on the table like i i i accept the i i, I accept the kind of um insider traditional way of looking at these things but that's not to say that that the historical kind of material processes didn't happen the way you can't that you can't analyze things at that level so yeah, and if you look at the, there's like this um, cache of documents that was found called um, in in, a, in an area of China called Dunhuang, and there's these Dunhuang manuscripts that are like a really interesting snapshot of what the Tibetan Buddhist tradition looked like in this border region with China at like the like around the year 800 900, um, and indeed like there's a lot of overlap between some of the early materials that fed into Dzogchen and this kind of like. Chinese Chan in, in Japan Zen material like the, the, there's like clear textual historical links between those traditions. The best way to think about the dichotomy of like sudden versus gradual and and in China at the time, which that the date you just mentioned is like right at the tail end of the uh, 
the golden age. It was like uh, Yoon Min was like the biggest guy right before that time. But the way to think about it is, is that it's gradual, 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 and then it's sudden. There, it, it's not we, one or the we, other. We should talk about that at a separate time. I got to run. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I love that story, man. And the, 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 I love the scholar, the king, and the sorcerer. That is just so awesome. Isn't that great? Like, I just think that's – all right, here's, here's the last question that we're going to hit. It's Carson S. Is Nirvana Beyond Karma? Answer, yes. <laughs> yes. All right. Thank you all so much. Uh, I hope this has been an informative and interesting um, episode of Right Wing Dharma Squads. We will catch you next week. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye, everyone.